listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Thank you for listening. The Infinite Smile Sangha is made possible by the generosity of friends, members, and people who have been touched by this teaching. Please visit our donations page at infinitesmile.org to help us continue our efforts in spreading the Dharma. Sometimes we have those days that uh, remind us of resistance. They remind us of um, where we're holding. Things can go wrong. Expectations aren't met. Your daughter barfs on you when you're about to go somewhere. Although I've learned to kind of accept that totally. Um, But little things can go wrong all the time. And it's such a gift when that happens. It's such a gift when your day totally, totally is messed up. The reason I say this is because from a practice point of view, this allows us to look very, very carefully at exactly exactly the situations, exactly the uh, um, scenarios where we have clinging. If there's clinging to anything, if we're not letting go in a particular moment, we have... Uh, we will find that resistance will arise. And there's this really interesting thing that the mind does. The mind thinks that resistance will actually help it get its way. When in fact, rather than attracting a favorable outcome, resistance invariably leads to negativity. And negativity makes it impossible for favorable outcomes to flourish in their entirety. Negativity merely fixates and, uh, uh, use the word, ossifies the mind, ossifies the ego. This is not to say (laughs) that the antidote to this is to go around feeling happy when, in fact, we feel like we want to, you know, sock someone around the belly, all right? What we're saying here is this. The teaching has a way of directing us continually and in every case inward. In every case, looking at what's going on in experience. Finding our resistance patterns. Finding our patterns of craving. Just uncovering all of this stuff as it is. The minute we can accept, my goodness, I'm in a really tough space right now or I'm feeling I'm feeling really really horrible lots of negativity is just you know being thrown around the minute we can accept it instead of trying to get away from it or instead of indulging it and letting it take us over the more we can just watch it the better off everyone is 
the more apt we are to be available to constructive, positive, open outcomes. And our meditation is a chance for us to practice that. It's a chance for us to practice being open and available to exactly what's going on in this moment. With the quality of consciousness that is exactly this consciousness. We're not trying to get anywhere. We're not trying to move toward or away from anything. We're supposed to be right here, sitting in the face of all of it, without moving. Studying our experience with our full attention. Not pushing, not pulling, just being absolutely 100% alive to what is going on. So you can try this tonight as you sit. Just just try to be fully. Be right there with whatever's going on. If it's uncomfortable, be there with your discomfort. If it's blissful, be there with your bliss. If there's murderous rage, be there with your murderous rage. Please don't act it out here in this room. Wait till after. <laughs> Whatever it is, can you be with it? Just just be right there with it. Let it cook you. And what you'll find is, as you can begin to watch whatever that experience is, as you can begin to be aware of it as it's arising, as you can be 100% totally curious about whatever is arising, be it positive or negative or somewhere in between, that curiosity, that wonder, guides us into an ever it's, it's, it's an ever-deepening space or ever... Uh, it's, a po- <laughs> it's a wondrously open ascent. How's that? The blossom of awakening begins to unfold right here in this very experience with just this awareness that you have right now. You don't have to seek anything. You don't have to go anywhere. You just have to be fully here. And that may be difficult for the ego to kind of understand because the ego, ego usually gets you here so that you can get away from, or so that it can get away from what it perceives to be not good. Well, I would challenge you to allow, if not good is there, be there totally. It's especially easy to be there when it's really good. That's not so hard. Just kind of, ah, nice. (laughs) But what if it's not so good? Can you be there too? Ah, it's not so nice. But I'm still here. I'm not moving. That develops an incredible power, an incredible strength within each person who can willingly kind of walk into that fire. We start developing steadiness. I once heard uh, Thich Nhat Hanh call it solidity, as if you are a mountain, quite literally, as if we are just a mountain in this space, not flinching no matter what goes on not being pushed, not being pulled, not being whipped around by the winds of change.
not by greed, not by aversion, not by praise, not by blame, not by success, not by failure. Nothing pushes us off center. And that center is the awareness that you have right now. So just hang there. If you're totally new to this whole meditation thing, in this really unique way, you're kind of best off because you don't know what you're supposed to be doing. And that's great. The not knowing is actually closer than really having a clear idea of what we're supposed to be doing. The clear idea is basically an egoic disguise for an attachment. Just being in this awareness as it is, meeting whatever arises in whatever capacity it chooses to show up without moving, that's the practice. Let's give it a shot. I think I may have shared this story a couple of times with you, uh, right when I was starting to meditate. Um, they were doing some, some reconstruction at, at the, uh, the temple where I was going, so we all had to meet out on this grassy lawn area, and they made this big tent that everybody could, everybody could sit under. It was quite cool, but it, uh, cool as in neat. Uh, but it was really interesting the distractions that would arise during meditation when you were out in the open air. And I remember um, how there was a dog that wouldn't stop barking. There was a, a car alarm that went off. This is all during one period of meditation. And uh, there was uh, a guy who kept sneezing and so forth, and a baby started crying. And, you know, I mean, everything that could possibly go wrong, in quotes, okay, wrong in a, at a meditation was kind of unfolding. And I was so bad at meditation that it wasn't just a distraction, but it became kind of this, this sucks. You know, this is really, I can't believe, you know, you'd think they'd be able to, you know, the, how inconsiderate is it, you know, and I would go into this, this spin, a very toxic spin. <laughs> and the, the guy that was uh, speaking was just this elfish uh, grin of a man who got up there and started kind of giggling. And he said, man, it's always something, isn't it? And it's, it's really stuck. It's always something. For us to seek peace anywhere other than right here is for us to fall prey to an egoic definition of awakening. Peace is right here with us in this room as you sit right now. It's underneath everything else. It's the fundamental, essential quality of reality. Out of stillness comes motion. Out of the rest 
comes the note in music, right? It's from stillness that something is struck and the vibration sings to us, quite literally. And the chords that are played might be pleasant or might be unpleasant depending on how we interpret them, depending on our perspective. But can we hear the silence underneath the chords? Can we be with and as the stillness that all of the vibration comes from? If we can, then we're bringing a much broader expanse to this experience we call life. We are suddenly spiritual beings having human experiences as opposed to human beings having spiritual experiences. I can't remember who said that, but it's not me. And then we embody it. Then we embody this kind of silence. We embody this stillness in a really powerful, powerful way. There's been kind of an interesting uh, discussion going on uh, on the internet based on a blog entry I made some months back where I was uh, making, making the proposition that enlightenment isn't personal. In other words, the moment you say, well, my enlightenment is the minute you personalize your enlightenment. If you personalize your enlightenment, the enlightenment is partial because it's possessed by some entity called me. Awakening is not possessed. It is not something that we can possess. It's not something that we can hold on to. It's not something that we can grasp. Paradoxically, it's also not something that we can resist for very long. Every one of us will surrender to stillness and will surrender to silence at our death. The trick is trying to die before we die. The trick is trying to get to that stillness before it's kind of forced on us by the universal law of all things are temporary, us being things. So the point was made that... Uh, there was a misinterpretation of what I said, basically. And I said that uh, enlightenment is not, is not something personal. It is embodied. It is experienced in this human form. I mean, where else is it going to be experienced? It comes through us, with us, as us, as this moment. It is infinite in its scope. It's infinite in its nature. It is boundless and cannot be bound by any one sense of me or mine. Well, this, of course, sent, uh, um, I guess, some, some people uh, off a little bit because they, were, they felt like I, I had been saying that their enlightenment was partial, and how dare I say that their enlightenment was partial. They knew what enlightenment was, and they had it. <laughs> Which is my point. You can't have it. It's not even something you can really want. It's something that just is. I mean, how many of you in this room, in this moment, really want your earlobes? You just want them. Damn. I'm jonesing for my earlobes or whatever. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's folly. You can't. <laughs> 
or the other one I've always loved. You can't attain your feet. They just are there. Stillness is there. Infinity is there. Openness is there. It's just waiting. It's waiting to be uncovered from within. And once it is uncovered from within, the whole idea surrounding enlightenment being mine or yours or his or something to be, if you will, sought after as opposed to deeply uprooted and uncovered becomes quite, quite difficult to comprehend. So I wanted to just kind of lay that out there. Um, we are all doing very deep personal work so that we can ultimately get beyond the clinging to what is personal. We are all in this room, presumably, to uncover peace. The, pe the peace that is stillness. The peace that is silence. We're here to find it. And our meditation, our meditative work is actually designed to fail us miserably in helping us find it out there. What it's really successful doing is helping us to recognize that we, we are never closer to stillness and silence than we are right here, right now. And minds or egos, and I use those terms interchangeably, both mind and ego. Minds hate hearing that. They're like, oh, well, if I already got it, then what the heck am I doing here? What? This makes no sense. Well, and I would say, yeah, it's probably a good question to ask yourself, what the heck are you doing here? My sense is you want to uncover the piece that's already there, and you can there's some time-honored ways of doing it, and that's kind of what we help show each other in a group situation. But what does it bring us? Well, it brings us a much more expanded sense of being. We live our lives through sight, sound, taste, touch, smell. We live through the, these, uh, if you will, organs of sensory, sensory organs, these organs of, of knowing in the conventional sense. If I can see it, I'll believe it, so to speak. If I can taste it, I know it's, you know, it's real. Uh, if I can feel it, if I can hear it, if I can smell it, whatever. We, we run into this very, very interesting situation where we live kind of bound by the five senses. And then at some point, we wake up to this idea of thought. And the Eastern tradition looks at that as kind of like a sixth sense. Not in the Western way of describing things, we look at the sixth sense as being something that is uh, uh, extrasensory. Or I will use my sixth sense to figure out what's going on in your noggin or something like that. But in spiritual terms, the sixth sense is the sense of mind, the sense of thought. And as we sense thought, as we become aware of our thoughts, we paradoxically have a way of becoming more aware of our bodies in those first five senses. We begin to be become aware of our physical being. 
the minute we go out into thought. We now can think about thinking. We call that metacognition. We can think about thinking and we can actually think about this body that we have. And then there's a, a, it doesn't require much to move past that, that sixth sense into the seventh sense, which is our sense of time, past and future. Our sense of time, actually when we become deeply aware of our sense of time in this new expanse, we can once again paradoxically become really aware of our thinking, how every single thought that we have either comes from something in the past or is about some fantasy in the future that has not happened yet. And all the, judge, uh, the judgments that uh, are associated with either past or future, what has happened and what has not yet happened. We become aware of time. And once we become aware of time, we then can move into a profoundly radical jump. If you can become aware of time, you can also become aware of the awareness of time. We can begin to witness time. We become aware of that which is witnessing time, that which is witnessing our thoughts, that which is witnessing our body sensations, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch. We can be aware of all these things in this eighth sense. And it's deeply freeing when we're there. It's this vast opening. We can be a witness to positively anything that arises, anything. Whatever shows up, we can be aware of it, whether it's positive, negative, or somewhere in between. We can be aware of every aspect, every junior level, if you will, beneath the eighth sense. Seventh sense, time. Sixth sense, our mind. Five, four, and three, two, one, the bodily sensations. And as we meditate more, as we begin to witness more, as the witness, our eighth sense, kind of becomes our new center of gravity. A new center of gravity that allows us to witness all the clinging, to witness all the me and mine impulses. We can then go a step further, following the witness to its core, we can hit the ninth sense, which is not really a sense at all. It's actually a recognition of emptiness, of no thing, of every single thing being ephemeral and infinite, of every single thing being free, of every single thing being just that, a thing that arises out of stillness, is born for a bit and then dies back into stillness. A thing that moves out of silence, makes noise for a bit, and then dies back into silence 
just like all of us. We start seeing everything is indeed temporary. We start seeing that everything, everything depends on everything else in order to have some substance. And we start seeing that everything but everything is spirit in action. This is when we start recognizing that the ninth sense isn't really a sense at all. It's just kind of an opening. And we can rest there. And we can live our lives from that place in ways that don't diminish the witness, that don't diminish time, that don't diminish thought, that don't diminish the body. We just live from a very, very big open place where the little stuff is seen as just that. Little stuff. Quite trivial. We start living lives that are then sourced from the infinite consciously. Where stress becomes something that we just not only don't need, but we don't find arising terribly often. Where we no longer identify with the junior levels of consciousness, so to speak, with the other senses. Instead, our identity has opened so vastly that we don't cling at all to who we think we are. We're past that. And as a result, this person that begins to show up in that, from that type of space can do amazing things. Can meet life beautifully, even when it's not pretty. Give it a shot. pushed fairly hard tonight, but I'd be honored to take a few questions. Yes? I just read um, Muji a few hours ago, and he said um, something about personality, but don't bother working on it because it's not real anyway. Never work on your personality. It's just he was laughing. Mm-hmm. And he said, um, I remain as I am. I think that's what he said. I stay as I am. Is mm-hmm. that what you're talking about? I think in a manner of speaking, yeah. I think you can get, we can, it's easy for us to get caught in those words. Mm-hmm. You know? But I really agree that working on the personality is just like working on our mind. Our personality is merely the mask that we show to the rest of the world. And we can decorate it beautifully, but it's still a mask. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, but there's still a personality. Sure. But working on the personality is kind of a distraction to the real work, which is uncovering what's underneath the mask. Mm -hmm. We can make the mask look really pretty. Yeah, I mean, we know people who have just these amazing masks. And they do, they work, they serve very, very well. Um, the only thing that usually rips the mask off is disaster. When everybody has, when that person who has the gorgeous mask has to reconfigure, has to rearrange all the furniture because everything has been turned upside down. And once that happens, they have an opportunity to recognize themselves the beauty of what's behind the mask. 
and they recognize the folly of trying to make a mask come close to the beauty of infinity, of our true self. So at that point, we kind of see that the mask is kind of let go. Of course, it can be used when it's needed, but it's, it's something that's transitory as opposed to something that is, you know, desperately trying to, you know, be forced, forced on, glued on. There's not enough spirit gum to keep the thing on, you know. There just isn't. Just as long as it's recognized the whole time that it's there. If we recognize fully the personality, then it's seen through. If we can recognize the personality fully, and that's the trick, mm -hmm. it's recognizing it fully. Usually we recognize it partially and give it permission, you know? And so basically that's, that's, a, that's a permission for ego to still continue to run the show. And you know what? Ego's important. Ego itself is, it's, you know, spirit, dancing, spirit in action. But we see it as something that, that is uh, a rather small derivative of what could be something that's much more massive. And that's exactly what's on the other side of the mask. How is permission given? Well, when we recognize, I mean, the ego, the ego can negotiate with us during our spiritual work in really creative ways. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. It's like, it's the thing that decides, well, you know what, I meditated 40 minutes yesterday, I'll go 35 today. <laughs> you know what I mean? It does that negotiation. It's the very thing in us, the, the thing that doesn't, it's the thing that doesn't want to sit. It's the thing that is, that, that shows up as resistance. And it's fine. I mean, you, you don't have to put a judgment on it. It just, I mean, there, there are traditions that not only put judgments on it, but they put out contracts on it. <laughs> where it's like, you, you got to kill the ego. And I'm a firm believer in the precept of not killing. You don't need to kill the ego. You just need to shift your perspective and recognize that from, you know, your eighth and ninth sense, the ego itself is just an aspect of sense number six, the mind. That's all it is. And so as a result, it can't harm you. It can't, it just doesn't have anything substantial about it that can wreak havoc on anything if you're coming at life from one of the, you know, deeper senses, seven, eight, or nine. When you, do, when you come at life from, from sense uh, eight and nine, specifically, consciously, we are, uh, we're, changing, we're changing the world. I especially would love to hear um, any question that's about, like, I have no idea what you just said. <laughs> those are always really good. You know, so if anybody wants to fire off with one of those, it might be, yeah, yeah. Um, delusion. Mm -hmm. I've been kind of like into that, I guess, lately. Seeing that and the distractions, and maybe that's kind of on the egoic thing, but I, I'm starting to see how I spin over to here to handle this instead of being on center. And I really worked on that, you know, hearing you talk about, uh, you know, not moving towards the ecstasy and away from the pain. But right. I do see those delusions. So. Yeah, so, so delusions, if you can see the delusions, you're coming at delusions from a place deeper than the delusion, more expansive than delusion. Usually that's eighth, eighth sense. You're, you're witnessing the delusion, right? It's like you're in the audience of the delusion. 
most of the time. If you can, that's marvelous. That's marvelous. So, and the next step is doing it three quarters of the time. And we start small. We start, you know, with the minor irritants. Um, it's funny how I mentioned the car alarm. I, I went to, I was at San Francisco Zen Center. Uh, this is some years ago. And there was a car alarm that went off like every few minutes during the morning meditation. And initially, the initial thing that kind of went off in me, I, I can't speak for anybody else, but for me it was, God damn. You know, I came out, I spent the night, I'm, this is bullshit. You know, can't it, you know, and I went into this big story. And then suddenly it was like a little, oh, huh. It's just a car alarm. I don't have to resist it. In fact, not resisting it is non-delusion. The delusion was the gripping onto non-car alarm or non-car alarm. Yeah, you know, I was trying, trying to push it away. That's the delusion. The delusion always, always, always involves resistance. Non-delusion always, always, always involves acceptance, but total attentiveness. Does that make sense? You can have total acceptance without attentiveness, and then you can fall easily into an egoic um, mushiness, where we just, ah, it's all okay. The Zen teacher said, just say yes to life, and it's like, okay, you could, you could do that, but that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying, <laughs> that sounded so stupid. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is, it's not that everything's fine. It's that everything is what it is. Now accept that, then go. Then move. Then you're moving from a place of conscious awareness. You might be very, very uncomfortable, but if you're absolutely accepting of the discomfort. You are comfortable in the middle of your discomfort. And that type of activity, activity that is sourced from that, moves mountains. Yes? So resistance and attachment, are they both the same thing? Mm-hmm. Just in different directions. Okay. So let's, the um, interpretive dance I always do for that goes something like this. Attachment, you with me so far? Mm-hmm. Okay. And resistant is attachment over here. I'm clinging to something, not that. So it takes both to resist and it takes both to, to be attached, right? Well, you're clinging. That's the, only, that's the only thing you need okay. for attachment is to cling. And it's either clinging to an object that you want or clinging to an object in order to get you away from something you don't want. Does that make sense? It does. And then I'm wondering how it relates to the resistance to sitting practice. So sitting practice, if we're resisting sitting practice, we are clinging to non-sitting. Yeah. And the clinger is the mind, is the ego. That's why I always say, you know, the very thing in you that does not want to sit is the very thing in you that is petrified and desperate to keep 
enlightenment on the other side of the door. Enlightenment is just waiting to crash through. Okay? And sitting weakens the door. It weakens the jam. The lock becomes rickety. It's the accident that we're waiting for. And we, through meditation, become deeply accident-prone. And to be aware that you're going to sit requires not just being, but it requires having an active mind and saying, it doesn't just come from being, right? Because if it did, then you're not going to make the time. It does come from being, but it also takes a little bit of backbone. Discipline. Yeah, it takes discipline. It takes... Uh, Sometimes what I do now is, is like the alarm will go off and I'll have that moment of, oh, no, 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 cannot be, cannot be. I'm dreaming this. This is a bad dream, you know. And I hit and snooze, snooze alarm, you know, and then, then it goes off again. It's like, it wasn't a bad dream. It's real. And then right there I get to look at my ego squarely in the eye. And I always always, you know. <laughs> but it does. It takes a little bit. Of, it takes some pushback, you know, because basically what we are beings of inertia. And uh, what this allows for is for us to bust that inertia down. And then it becomes... You know, and it goes in waves. I mean, sometimes it's just so dang easy, you know. It's just, man, it's just it's like this f beautiful flow. And then other times, not so easy. I'm imagining it not being very easy for much, much longer. You know, with the addition of another child in the house, it's, it, it was freaking hell when a baby was born at first because it didn't happen the way I wanted it to happen, right? And then what a gift. I had to readjust. That's exactly what the practice brings us. It infinitely offers us challenge. You know? And no matter how set we might be in our ways, no matter how set we might think it should be like this, thunk, the universe pulls that rug right out from under. And then in the splat, we have an opportunity to reconfigure, always, always, always leaning closer and closer and closer to that light that keeps guiding us. So, you're very welcome. Thank you very much.